CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, it's interesting. It's uh, April 19th, 2022. But the two top stories we're going to be discussing today uh, take us back to the 2020 presidential election. We'll get to that in just a minute. One of them's a pretty significant piece of news about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and the other is a story that was written by my Tuesday partner on this show, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, you had a sit-down with Fonnie Willis, who um, is preparing a special grand jury to investigate uh, questions about whether uh, Donald Trump interfered in a criminal way with efforts to, or whether he was involved in criminal efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Um, it's great that you got a chance to talk to her. We're going to get to it in a little while, but how are you right now? Freezing my buns off in the mountains of Virginia at my parents' house, but I'm doing great. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, I'm glad you're uh, with us. Uh, there are times when I really wish I were back home in the Midwest. Today is not one of them. <laughs> I am very glad to be down here where it's a bit warmer. Um, we're also joined today by uh, two of our favorite panelists, um, Michael Thurman, CEO of, the, of DeKalb County, uh, longtime elected official in Georgia, going all the way back to his years as a state representative in from Athens, Georgia, when he was just a young uh, politician. Uh, and uh, Michael, you know, we're very glad you could be with us today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Bia. It's great to be with you this morning. And you're joined uh, by an old friend of yours and someone you worked with, have worked with extensively over the years, Sam Olins, former attorney general of the state of Georgia, former chairman of the Cobb County Commission, now a partner with Denton's. Sam, the world's largest law firm. How are you, Sam? Good morning. Pleasure to be with you all this morning. It's great to have you. All right, uh, let's get right to this uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene news tomorrow. It's it's pretty important. Um, and a, a national liberal organization has filed lawsuits uh, in a number of venues, including North Carolina against Madison Cawthorn, um, but also Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, it, saying that they should be disqualified, Marjorie Taylor Greene should be disqualified from running for re-election because she was a part, either encouraged or aided the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And the case is based on a Civil War-era law that was passed by Congress, which was set up to um, disallow Confeder members of the Confederacy from holding office since they had been considered traitors. Uh, now, this lawsuit suggests that Marjorie Taylor Greene is in the same camp saying again that she aided in some way the insurrection. What, what's interesting about it is yesterday, federal judge Amy Totenberg said this case can move forward. She rejected Greene's attorney's uh, arguments that the case had no merit. And I'm going to read tomorrow just a very quick portion of what she said and then ask you to jump in. In her 73-page ruling, she wrote, Ms. Green has failed to meet the burden of persuasion in her request for injunctive relief, which she called an extraordinary and drastic remedy. Quote, this case involves a whirlpool of colliding constitutional interests of public import. This is the judge. The novelty of the factual and historical posture of this case, especially when assessed in the contest, context of preliminary injunction motion reviewed on a fast track, has made resolution of these complex legal issues at stake here particularly demanding. And so what it means is that Friday, Marjorie Taylor Greene's case is going to be in a court here in uh, Georgia. tomorrow. Yeah, and they're really under the gun to act because, you know, early voting begins very soon. And I understand that they're going to start mailing ballots 
within the next week. And so time is certainly of the essence here. And I wonder how much can really be done before this, this Republican primary on May 24th. Um, you know, if ballots are already out, it might be really hard for a federal judge to do anything that would keep Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot. Um, and even if she does rule, ultimately, you know, this is certainly a case that's going to be appealed. And since, you know, a similar challenge you mentioned regarding a Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina kind of went the other way, I, I could see a higher court, a higher judge being asked to intervene and, and come up with something that could apply to all candidates. Um, Green's lawyer uh, said this is fundamentally, fundamentally anti-democratic um, and, and pointed out, he says, that Green had, uh, quote, publicly and vigorously condemned the attack on the Capitol. Um, before I uh, bring you, Sam, and you, Michael, in, let me play for you just a short uh, soundbite from Marjorie Taylor Green, who appeared last night on Fox News to talk about uh, this decision by Judge Totenberg. They've hired up some attorneys from New York who hate the people in my district and don't believe that they should have the right to elect who they want to send to Washington, which is me. I have overwhelming support in my district and I'm so thankful for all of them. Well, now they filed a lawsuit because they're trying to rip my name off of the ballot and steal my district's ability to reelect me and send me back to Congress. Sam Olins, that was Marjorie Taylor Greene on Tucker Carlson last night. Your thoughts on this? Bless her little heart. <laughs> if I was a Southerner, that would seem to be appropriate. Look, it's really it's really amusing when when you say that an action by the court was undemocratic when you sought to overrule um, state and federal law so that your candidate becomes the president, whether he deserves to be or not. Um, I think the long and short of this whole issue is we're going to be litigating this for years, especially due to the split that uh, Tamar referenced earlier. Um, so this issue is going nowhere quickly. One of the more interesting issues from a legal perspective is, frankly, whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is the legal issue here, applied only to the Confederacy or whether it still applies today. If it still applies today, it seems to me there's numerous folks that uh, could face similar legal battles. So, uh, Sam, in, res in, in regard to that, Judge Totenberg ruled that the, the, the I believe I'm right, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that after the uh, Confederate uh, um, members of the Confederacy w w fell under this law, um, a later Congress said uh, that they were not going to apply this to any, anybody beyond that. They were essentially um, indemnifying other people from being involved in this case. Judge Totenberg said no. If the Congress had really wanted to overturn this law, they would have brought it forward as a constitutional amendment. So it's still in effect, Sam. Yeah, I think there's a good argument that uh, Congress can't uh, supersede a, a provision in our Constitution. It may demonstrate intent, but it doesn't demonstrate the law of the land. Uh, Michael Thurman, uh, let me ask you about this. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably correct that she is the overwhelming favorite to be reelected in the 14th Congressional District. Um, to what extent is, is this action um, going to absolutely convince her voters that um, th that uh, what she says is true, that that uh, liberals hate her, that a, a liberal judge, she would call Amy Totenberg a liberal judge, is trying to disqualify her from the ballot. I mean, isn't in the long run, since this is going to drag on forever, it, it, it seems to me that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene can get a lot of mileage out of this. Well, not that she would need it with her base supporters. I don't know what else can be said or done to inure them to her in terms of support. But I think uh, it adds an additional narrative to who this particular representative really is. Uh, I don't know ultimately what will be decided in court, uh, but I do know that tying her to this insurrection, and at some point there will be a reckoning for all of those who participated, aided, and abetted uh, this attempt to overthrow the election. And I think maybe the ultimate strategy is to make sure that she can not 
uh, remove herself from culpability or responsibility for what happened on January 6th. Tomorrow? In the short in the short term, I expect her to fundraise off of this and kind of to play into that narrative uh, that Michael Thurman just mentioned of how, you know, she's embattled, how liberals hate her, how she's there to represent you and she doesn't care about, you know, the the lefty political establishment. Um, you know, she's she's proven, you know, that, that has proven to be remarkably effective for her in her fundraising. And she's been an, an amazing fundraiser since she's come to Washington. And I would be shocked if she doesn't use this to keep fundraising. I mean, and, and there was a development recently and that her Democratic challenger, Marcus Flowers, actually outraised her this last quarter, which was really surprising. He raised $2.4 million, which is super impressive for a challenger whose name no one knew until very recently compared to her $1.1 million. Um, this is the first time I believe that she's been outraised. Um, in, at least that I can think of recently. So I, I could see her using this to really step up her efforts. So, um, Michael, the next step on this is that <clears throat> later this week, an administrative law judge will take up this case. Um, one of the things that the organization that, that has been filing these lawsuits wanted to do was to force people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who they say it supported the insurrection, to testify. So we'll see what her attorneys try to do, but it is possible that she may be in court, Michael, at the end of this week trying to defend her position that, of course, she did not support the insurrection. Yes? Uh, absolutely. And one of my favorite sayings is that history always casts the final ballot. You know, we're into the horse race, into the 2022 election. As I stated, that will be a reckoning at some point in the history of our nation where those who participated in this will have to uh, account for their actions and maybe it's a long game as opposed to a short game. Tomorrow is really absolutely right. This is only this will raise her additional money uh, from the base, and she'll become even more beloved. But think about history. Think about those who historically have tried to prevent or undermine progress in our nation. Ultimately, it all came out in the wash, and ultimately many of these people have been discredited. Uh, you can see it even now. Uh, as we look at, uh, you mentioned the Confederacy, how Confederate monuments are being removed from public spaces. Eventually, there will be a reckoning. And I just believe that Marjorie Taylor Greene and those who encouraged and supported this particular insurrection against the United States of America uh, will have to pay a price. Sam, if, if I understand this correctly, the administrative law judge will review the challenge, possibly take testimony from Marjorie Taylor Greene and litigants in this case, the um, uh, plaintiffs in this case. And what's ironic is he apparently will submit recommendations for how to handle her uh, name being on the ballot to the Secretary of State, to Brad Raffensperger. He's the one who gets to make the final judgment. Sam, as if Brad Raffensperger isn't in enough trouble right now, in, at least according to the polls, Having to handle this hot potato is going to be fascinating to watch. So two things. First of all, as an administrative law court, OSA is not quick. There are no emergency hearings, emergency appeals, that type of thing. Uh, and if there were, this doesn't satisfy the fact pattern. So this, this will not occur uh, shortly. Uh, with regard to Brad, I don't think that's really relevant because Brad has been a straight shooter throughout. And whether this could potentially harm him in uh, May uh, or not, uh, I have confidence that he'll do what he thinks is the right thing. All right. We're going to watch this unfold um, and we'll see how quickly this goes to the administrative law judge. I'm, I'm glad you made that point, Sam, because some of the stories that I've read in this, I think the New York Times uh, suggested that it could be going to court as soon as the end of this week. So, Sam, what, really one last question on this. You do not think there is any way in the world this can have an impact on whether she is on the May 24th ballot or not, or, or, or is there some way legally her name could be stricken before then? There is not a chance in hell a judge is going to strike her name from the ballot for May 24. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> Tamara, let's move on to a 
Another story that is somewhat related to this, you, as I said at the very top of the show, sat down with Fonnie Willis, who has uh, talked just very sparingly about the special grand jury she's impaneling to um, investigate the allegations that Donald Trump may have criminally interfered with the 2020 presidential election by trying to overturn the results. So, Tamar, talk to us about what she told you and uh, what you think are the pertinent aspects of your story. Well, first, it was interesting to hear a little bit more about the scope of how many people she's talked to so far. She's been extremely mm-hmm. tight-lipped over the last uh, 14 or so months since she launched it. Um, we didn't know how narrow or how broad she was looking. Um, and so she she said that her prosecutors have talked to at least 50 people so far, and that at least 30 others had previously declined to be interviewed without a subpoena. So we know that she's going to be seeking subpoenas for at least 30 people when this special grand jury uh, convenes on May 2nd, uh, which I think is is way more certainly than I thought. You know, the, the name we'd heard, Brad Raffensperger has said uh, in the press that, that he was waiting for a subpoena to testify, but we didn't know if she was going to go after five people to testify or if it was going to be way more than that. So 30 for me seemed much bigger than than what I was expecting. She also said she was hoping to talk to about 60 other people in the interim. So more people could could re- require subpoenas, which was interesting to me. Um, she also mentioned that she was going to wait until after the primaries uh, to start calling in witnesses to testify, which is important because the star witness of this case, at least one of them, is going to be Brad Raffensperger, who is in the, the primary race of his life against Jody Heiss. And she acknowledged that that it might be kind of hard for somebody like that to want to, to speak, you know, with the entire truth, entirely honestly, if you have this kind of primary battle looming over your shoulder. Um, you know, there's other folks she could talk to as well who who could be facing runoffs, including Brian Kemp. He got a phone call from from Donald, several phone calls from Donald Trump in 2020 and 2021. Um, so it's interesting to hear that she's also taking into account kind of the, the political calendar and all of this. And certainly you talk to Republicans and they see this entire investigation as kind of a cynical way that a Democrat is trying to influence the the midterm elections. She, she says that's not the case. Um, and it's interesting to kind of see her lay out her timeline. Um, Michael, uh, uh, Tamar also in her story points out that Willis has indicated in other times that her team is going to, uh, uh, in addition to looking at Trump himself uh, in the phone call to Raffensperger, uh, they're going to look at the abrupt re- uh, resignation of uh, B.J. Pack, who uh, stepped down suddenly as U.S. attorney um, after being told by the Trump administration that they were, go- they were gunning for him if he didn't support their efforts to overturn the election. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who placed a call to Raffensperger at one point, can't you do something about the election count in Georgia? Uh, false claims by Rudolph Giuliani, who appeared at a couple of hearings in the Georgia State Capitol with legislators. Um, so this thing has, is being painted with a broader brush than just Donald Trump, Michael. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. First of all, though, tomorrow, great reporting. Uh, uh, and we compliment you for that. Bill mentioned it. Uh, and I respect uh, Ms. Willis, and I know she will comport herself in a way uh, that is ethical and, 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 and aligns with law. And I think it's an investigation that could and must go forward based on the facts, uh, as I know them, or at least uh, the way they've been reported in the media. I don't have any personal knowledge of any of this. But let me say something, Bill, on a broader scale. Uh, my greatest concern uh, out of all of this is we are continuing to see an erosion of democracy and trust in our election process. And one of the things that we are going to have to do as Americans and as leaders is to do everything we can to assure voters uh, that they have fair and equal access to the polling places and their votes will be counted. Uh, If you think about some of these bills that were promulgated and adopted by the General Assembly this year, you think about what happened uh, in the presidential election and and on and on and on. Uh, There has to be a counter narrative so that people who may uh, become uh, influenced or discouraged will not just walk away and not participate. Really, this is a threat to the democratic process, and we have to be sensitive to that uh, here in this nation. 
Sam, your thoughts on uh, what Mike just said? Well, I don't disagree. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't disagree with, with Mike, but, you know, candidly, time is running by. You know, we're now in the primary of 2022. I, I would be surprised if there were indictments before the November election. Uh, if she were going to issue indictments, <clears throat> I'm not sure she'd be inclined to do so shortly before a general election. So then we're talking at the end of 22, beginning of 23. As serious as the allegations are, and I do believe they're very serious, um, with time, memories fade or decide to fade. And if I were a Democrat right now, I'd be really nervous that they lose the House, they lose the Senate, and all these federal investigations are then non-existent. Mike. And Sam, you may be able to help me. Uh, can a special grand jury actual issue indictment? Yes, sir. And maybe tomorrow? No. No, a no? special grand no. jury cannot indict. They can subpoena for documents and witnesses, but she, the Fonnie Willis, if she wants an indictment, would have to present in front of a regular grand jury. So on top of this other group who's convening on May 2nd. So um, that really, uh, Sam, extends the narrative that you're talking about uh, uh, to much longer time frame, potentially. But, but, you know, Tamar, one of the things about this that I, I find interesting, maybe a little troubling, I, I don't doubt that Fonnie Willis, in saying, I'm not going to let the grand jury take testimony till after the primary, um, I don't doubt that she's trying to, to some extent, depoliticize her work here. Um, and I don't doubt that she found herself in a in an interesting position as a prosecutor. If she felt there was possible criminal wrongdoing by Trump and some of these others, then she feels compelled to present it. But let's be honest, Tamar, this will always be interpreted as a political uh, effort by Fonnie Willis, whether she's really uh, culpable for that or not. Absolutely. And I mean, it comes at a time when every institution in America is becoming increasingly politicized. You know, this third branch of government that for so long was seen as kind of nonpartisan or, or apolitical, every action they take is now being viewed through that lens. And it, it doesn't help that, you know, Donald Trump, especially, he sees any any kind of investigation into him as kind of a, a personal attack. And he's kind of framed all of these investigations through that lens. So I think no matter what Fonnie Willis does, just like you said, will be viewed as partisan. I mean, it doesn't help that she also had to declare a party when she ran and she declared as a Democrat for Fulton County. So that makes it challenging as well. It's also worth noting, um, looking at the time frame, if this does extend past the midterm elections, Fani is up for re-election in 2024 and Donald Trump has suggested that he might want to run for president in 2024. So it starts getting really icky really fast in terms of the time frame. And of course, folks don't want to seem like they are doing anything to kind of influence the political process. At the same time, um, you can't let these things sit forever. And, um, you know, it, it gets harder the longer it's out there, as Sam mentioned. All right. Um, thank you for starting us off with some really um, interesting uh, commentary on two pretty significant stories. We're going to do this. We're going to take a break right now and come back with a lot more on today's show. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, former State Attorney General Sam Olins, and senior reporter for the AJC Tamar Hellerman, join me uh, for today's show. Um, Tamar, we're getting a chance to look at first quarter fundraising totals for from uh, candidates, and uh, we continue to look at the astonishing amounts of money being raised for the U.S. Senate seat that Raphael Warnock holds right now. Uh, Warnock collected. $13.6 million, according to his filings, during the first quarter, uh, one of the highest fundraising totals that it's, I think he's been setting records all along for fundraising in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Rafi, uh, Herschel Walker uh, uh, reported $5.5 million in the first three months of the year. So he's doing really well as, as too. But let me add a couple other figures and then uh, turn it over to all of you. Um, 
we're also now starting to see how PACs are weighing in to the Senate races. So um, the GOP Senate Leadership Fund has already uh, reserved $23.9 million in ad time for would, would they presume Herschel Walker's run for the U.S. Senate? And the Democratic Senate Majority PAC has reserved $24.6 million for the fall. Staggering figures, Tamar, and there's a lot more to come. Staggering is the exact word I would use. Normally, I would say for a, you know, for a senator, a million would be a normal amount of money to raise, like two million would be incredible. And 13.6 million is nuts. It's nuts. And it's only going to go up from here. And it just goes to show, first of all, how much the outside world, outside of Georgia, sees you know how important they see this contest. You know, is going to be. It could very well determine control of the Senate in 2022, and. It also suggests that it's going to be impossible to turn on a television or a radio this summer or fall without being bombarded by more political ads, as if we didn't get enough of that in 2020 and early 2021. Uh, Sam and Mike, we, you have both been part of shows where we've talked about fundraising before, um, but but I think it's always worth uh, talking about it again. Um, you you were talking you and you and Mike talked about your concerns about the future of our democracy in terms of the big lie and disinformation campaigns. But when we talk about the kinds of money being raised for races like the Senate race, it'll be raised for the governor's race between Stacey Abrams and maybe Brian Kemp, whatever. Um, it, it, are we dealing with a question about uh, democracy in terms of? it being bought by big money interests? Sam? So, you know, the, the, the Democrats were so um, uh, infuriated with the Citizens United decision. And then they immediately did what they said they'd never do. Uh, and the first case in Georgia that really demonstrated that was... Uh, now Senator Ossoff's campaign for Congress. So in many ways, the Democratic Party has become more proficient at raising dollars from out of state than the Republican Party. Uh, so um, both parties now fully understand how to totally destroy our life by placing pathetic commercials on every form of media. Having said that, I think there's a limit to how much we can stand. So um, attack ads to me are a good reason to go to the restroom. Um, I like seeing uh, the dog that licked uh, Senator Warnock's uh, face much more than an attack ad. Um, so I think all these numbers make for news. But how many times do we need to see candidate commercials in the same program? Uh, I think it's now uh, excessive, and I think they have diminishing returns. Um, Sam, uh, thank you for that. Let me ask you, uh, and, and then turn to Mike on this. Um, to, when big money is, is the only way you can get elected to office, what does that say about our democratic processes? Well, it, it's clearly uh, very poor. And what you're seeing more and more are candidates with no political experience running for office off of their own money and then potentially getting PAC uh, support thereafter. The, the, the days when someone like me could run statewide um, may unfortunately be gone because it appears you've got to be a multimillionaire to put your hat in the ring. Mike Thurman, weigh in. No, I, I agree with Sam on several of his points. Uh, first, number one, this is not a Georgia Senate race. This is a nationalized race for control of the United States Senate. And that's game-changing. Uh, you know, we always want it to be a battleground state, so sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. And as a result of that, uh, all the campaigns have become more or less national campaigns, particularly a U.S. Senate race. You know, being an old-school kind of politician, you have to just sit in amazement uh, 
to watch the amount of money that's flowing in, uh, the fact that, you know, both Senate campaign committees, Republican and Democrat, have already purchased uh, nearly $50 million in advertising, uh, regardless as to who the candidate is, uh, lets you know it's about the candidates, but really more than that is about control of the Senate itself. And, you know, Sam has a great point. You know, back in the good old days, whenever that was, um, it, it was more about, you know, you have to earn this right, but now you can just purchase the right, to be honest with you. And if you can purchase it, whether you're a multimillionaire or have multimillionaire backers, uh, that's all you really need uh, to win and ultimately get elected. Um, let me ask you another question. Uh, is, Sam, let me t- turn to you on this uh, because um, because you're out of elective politics for the time being. My- Michael is still, you know, uh, at DeKalb County CEO and, he, you know, he m- may have other ambitions to run for office. I think you're decided your days are done. I- I'm curious what you think about the fact, and I've mentioned this on the show before, TV stations are making, are, are going to make st- I, we use a staggering a word against staggering amounts of money on the 2022 election cycle as they did 2020. Um, uh, and yet it's not unusual to hear uh, the news uh, side of things, uh, stories about how outrageous it is that there's so much money in uh, in campaigning these days. There's a certain amount of hypocrisy there that most of this money is going, as you pointed out, to buy ad time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I feel better if some of that money was used to raise the salaries of folks like Tamar and Bluestein. Uh, now it's a <laughs> now it's a, it's a corporation like all corporations, and uh, this is no different from the uh, oil companies. And you right. become well, really uh, jaded. The uh, you know it it does. You become jaded by it all. And someone and Sam said something. I think. Time may have passed me by, uh, to be honest with you, as an elected official and a public servant. Because, you know, I came up in the school where you, you get out there, you try to help people as much as you can, and you make a difference. It wasn't just about TV ads. And, you know, I recognize that I'm old school and acknowledge that as far as uh, elective office, you know, I may be from a different generation. All right. Thank you for that. Let's move on uh, to uh, another subject. Um, Tamar, uh, let's talk. The debate schedules is now All of the debate schedules are basically now set. Of course, um, uh, Herschel Walker's already said he's not going to participate in any of the Republican primary debates. So the Senate debates are going to be, I think, of less interest to an awful lot of people out there. But the race, the, the debates between David Perdue and Brian Kemp, which are now scheduled, are going to be of much higher interest, I would imagine. I think we're now talking about three debates, one on WSB-TV, um, one on is it Columbus TV. I frankly don't remember that one. And, and then GPB will broadcast a debate by the uh, uh, Atlanta Press Club on May 1st. Um, Tamar, to what extent do you think David Perdue does, can really make use of a debate to gain any momentum against Brian Kemp? Do, do debates still matter? Yes and no. But actually, in this situation, I think it, it might. Uh, David Perdue did not participate in debates against John Ossoff in 2020 in that Senate race when he was running for re-election. And John Ossoff had a really viral moment where he was able to frame David Mm. Perdue as a crook and because he traded stocks and wasn't answering for them. And it was very powerful for then the camera to pan over to an empty podium. And and that was an episode where John Ossoff was able to get a ton of mileage against David Perdue in what ended up to be this, this super close race. And perhaps it did make a difference. And so 
for David Perdue, this could be a really huge opportunity from him. He's played his ace card, which is having, you know, Donald Trump in his corner and coming to Georgia to campaign on his behalf. It seems based on the polls we've seen since that event in Commerce, Georgia, that it didn't lead to this giant bump that I think David Perdue and his allies were hoping for. Perhaps this debate could give him that opportunity. Maybe he can catch Governor Kemp off guard. Maybe he can get those great soundbite moments that could lead uh, you know, that can end up in advertisements on TV and on the radio. And at this point, with polls showing that he's something like 10 points behind Governor Kemp, he might want to take those, you know, any opportunity he can get. Um, Mike, I found the schedule, so let me read it very quickly. WSB-TV in Atlanta will broadcast their debate between Kemp and Purdue on April 24th. It's Savannah, WTOC, on April 28th. And then the Atlanta Press Club debate, which GPB broadcast, will take place on May 1st. What is the value of debates uh, uh, these days, uh, Michael, especially in the context of having talked about the amount of money that will go into TV ads? Well, back in the old days, they were extremely important, to be quite honest with you. And I was one of those candidates, uh, thanks to Maria Supporter, who had the opportunity to debate an empty chair when I was running for labor commissioner. You'd be amazed at how disenchanted people are with candidates who don't show up for a debate. But let me go back to Herschel Walker. See, I'm not, I believe that if Walker does not win the thing outright in the primary, he's going to lose. I'm just telling you, I believe that he is going to lose that race uh, because, number one, he's not debating, and if he can't get 50-plus one in the primary, he will not win that race. I'm just telling you. Uh, secondarily, uh, Purdue has the biggest problem is that his entire campaign is based on relitigating uh, 2020, and that's just not going to get it done against an incumbent governor who has although I disagree with most of his policies, still a record of actually having accomplished something. And for him, uh, I just don't see how, even in a debate, what he's going to say, but relitigate why Trump actually won the presidential race. And that's just a non-starter right now, even in Republican circles, which is why you saw the very um, uh, muted turnout for Trump in Jackson County a few weeks ago. Sam Olins, you've certainly participated in your share of debates. Uh, how important are they today? I think five people who weren't decided before the debate changed their mind after listening <laughs> to the debate. Um, I think the only debate that, that, frankly, will be interesting and that could uh, make a difference, could, not will, but could, would be um, Herschel Walker and Senator Wardock. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Herschel Walker to appear um, up to the challenge. And I think a lot of people will want to watch that debate. I'm not necessarily sure they'll watch two debates, but I think they'll watch one debate. Uh, uh, Mike, and then tomorrow. Look. If that's the debate, if it's a debate between uh, Walker and Senator Warnock, it'll be no contest. I'm telling you. And Republicans know the worst thing they could do is to nominate Herschel Walker in this race. And if he does, and even if one of the other candidates get in, I just think uh, Senator Warnock is going to be reelected. Tomorrow? The, the, the thing that... Senator Perdue needs to accomplish in, in these debates. You know, he the, the polls show that he he can't win this primary outright unless something outrageous happens between now and then. He has to be able to ke to keep Governor Kemp under 50 percent in order to drag him into a runoff, which are so unpredictable in Georgia, as as Brian Kemp himself knows. He was considered uh, far from the front runner uh, in, in 2018. So if uh, if Purdue can can convince enough folks who might have been wavering or or were maybe kind of weakly supporting Kemp to kind of go with him. That's all he needs. And so I think that might be something that could be achievable in these debates. I don't know. But maybe he wants to, you know, spend the entire debate relitigating the 2020 election, which, I mean, in a lot of his campaign appearances, that's what he's been focusing on. I'll, I'll be curious if he wants to go kind of far beyond that. All right. Um, we're going to take our final break of the show and come back with a few more items on today's Political Rewind.
Sam Olin's um, Rivian had the first of, I think they're going to have four meetings with the communities out where the plant is uh, scheduled to be built last night. And they got a lot of angry people uh, showing up saying that uh, Rivian has done nothing to uh, spell out its plans for um, what the project is going to look like. There was a very specific agenda for the meeting, uh, but they never really got to it because there were so many people complaining about the overall project itself. Um, but, but Sam Olins, you, you were chair of the Cobb County Commission, and you certainly dealt with uh, the balance between um, you know, economic development and concerns of residential, uh, residential uh, uh, neighborhoods where things were going to be uh, built. Talk about how you see the context uh, that in the context of Rivian. So education is everything. You've got to have outreach. Uh, CEO Thurmond has dealt with several uh, economic development projects that I'm personally familiar with where uh, there was no rush, where there was the opportunity to listen to all sides, to fashion uh, a solution that uh, worked for everyone. And my hope is that will occur here, too. Uh, you just need to work with the community. You need to educate the community. Uh, they need to feel that they're a part of the process. And if you do that, good things will happen. Mike, I'm not sure that, that the Rivian project is unfolding the way Sam Olin's just described. He used to deal with things and the way you're dealing with things like that. Well, Sam Olin was a master at uh, leading uh, local government. And, you know, it's, it's stunning for something of this magnitude with the potential benefit to that uh, community, the county, and the state to have been managed so poorly. This is like fumbling the ball inside the 10-yard line, to be quite honest with you. And Sam is right. What I think needs to happen is someone uh, needs to sit down and actually listen to the people in the community. Uh, we got a great state economic development team who actually worked miracles over the years. I just don't see how this one ran off the track uh, the way it did in such a, a spectacular way. And sometimes you just have to step back and say, you know what, apologize. Say, Look, we, got, we, we missed it. We got it wrong. And start over again and move forward. I, that's what I would do, Sam. Uh, sometimes you just have to admit you got it wrong and just reposition yourself and sit down and listen and give people a chance to be heard. Because oftentimes, Bill, it's not so much people want you to agree with you, but they do demand that you give them an opportunity to be heard. It feels, Tamar, as though, based on what both Sam and Mike just said, that that uh, the state and, and Rivian thought that they were presenting a great package to the people uh, in the communities out there and didn't expect the kind of pushback they've gotten. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it, you know, you some of the comments that the residents were giving at this event yesterday, as my colleague Drew Khan reported, is that they felt like it was very secretive, that they weren't getting a ton of information along the way. And then it's kind of introduced at the end with a bow, like, don't you want this? But there wasn't a, a ton of input throughout the process. And it seems like there's a lot of frustration and even just mistrust. It doesn't help that we're in the middle of a campaign season and that it's become a political football. Uh, Senator Perdue has tried to use this as a wedge issue in the governor's race. Of course, if this goes through, it would become a signature deal, uh, you know, a huge, a huge prize that Governor Kemp was would be able to, you know, brought the state of Georgia. And so he's trying to, to kind of use this on the campaign trail. And that certainly doesn't help. So, meanwhile, Sam Owens, the CEO of Rivian, uh, had a fairly ominous uh, uh, notes to present uh, in, in a talk he gave uh, the other day. Uh, he said supply chain has become a serious uh, problem for Rivian. Uh, uh, the components for batteries, electric bat car batteries, are in very short supply. He expects it to get worse not better in the many years to come. And they've actually shut down a portion of their Illinois assembly line 
uh, for lack of materials. I, I would think if I were Brian Kemp, Sam, I'd be a little bit nervous right now about this package, which he presented as one of his crowning achievements in economic development and what may happen next, Sam. Well, a couple of things. First, uh, Governor Kemp has frankly exceeded all prior records in the area of economic development, both with regard to dollars invested and jobs created. So I, I think the governor, frankly, deserves a lot of credit with many uh, new industries coming to our state and others expanding in our state. Uh, I also think that uh, it was unfortunate that um, Purdue chose to make this a political issue. Uh, jobs should not be a political issue. And in fact, when he went down there uh, to make comments, the um, crowd attendance, as reported by tomorrow's paper, uh, was frankly not impressive. Uh, so I'm not convinced that they wanted it to be viewed as a political activity either. Um, with regard to the CEO's comments, I give them, frank, uh, frankly, I give them points for honesty. There's an awful lot of industries at the moment, in particular the automotive industry, that are really hurt due to supply chain issues that aren't their fault. Uh, now, uh, a lot of them, frankly, don't relate to Russia, too. A lot of them relate to COVID and the fact that for decades, uh, we uh, spent too little attention trying to manufacture uh, certain items that are essential to high-tech industry. Uh, and I think that uh, literally saying this is going to be a problem uh, is uh, something more uh, corporate uh, leaders should do is to admit that there are global supply chain problems and we need to work their own. Uh, okay. Uh, we have five minutes left in the show, and I want to try to at least get a couple minutes in on a final subject. I shared with all of you um, <clears throat> who are doing the show today a column that Maureen Dowd wrote for the New York Times a couple weeks ago that I thought was really powerful and said something about the times we're living in. She said that she worries that with the Russian war against Ukraine unfolding, she wonders if we have the capacity for maintaining our focus on something as dreadful as that war at a time when she says we live in a world of nothing but distractions with a blizzard of stimuli, talking about social media. Um, she says, Michael Thurman, we have a way of turning everything into trends. Once there were causes, now there are trends. Your trending is the highest compliment you can pay someone or the biggest alarm you can sound. But trends are transient by development. Mike Thurman, she says she worries that this horrific, nightmarish war unfolding may not, we may not be able to sustain our focus on it, which will in the long run be very damaging to uh, the people of Ukraine and the Western world. Uh, it was a brilliant column. And yes, I mean, there's a, a capacity or at least a limit to capacity for empathy uh, as it relates to others with so much and so much anxiety. One of the biggest challenges uh, I'm facing right now is a workforce and a community that is exhausted and tired and frustrated and having personally experienced death and suffering. And it's just very, very difficult at the international, state, and local level to actually respond in an appropriate way. Sam, uh, she closes her column by saying solidarity with Ukraine is trending right now, but will it last? Solidarity is not a trend. It's a commitment. Sam? You know, uh, many in the Jewish community are familiar with the phrase, never again. Mm. And then we watch genocide in Rwanda. I think it's clear we're now watching genocide in the Ukraine. And I am both astounded and extremely frustrated that people uh, view this battle in political terms rather than humanitarian terms. And I share your concern. I share Maureen's concern. But boy, if we're going to let the Ukrainian people die in mass for a dictator's uh, 
little folly that certainly says a, a lot about mankind. Tamara, I've said before on this show that one of the things we're seeing in uh, in, in TV ver- uh, 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 coverage of this is uh, playing out of uh, the great vision uh, of uh, CNN, Ted Turner's great vision of an international news channel. CNN has been 24 hours around the clock covering Ukraine. And it's a, that's, I mention that because it's journalists who have the power, perhaps, to cut through the trends and focus on what's really happening. Yes. And something I've wrestled with as I've, you know, kept up with all of these developments and just been shocked every day and horrified by what I'm reading. It almost feels like you're bombarded by it all day long. Of course, I want there to be as much access and coverage as possible. But then I wonder, is there too much? Is it going to turn people off? You know, nothing but suffering and suffering all day long. What's the best way to make sure that there is, you know, solidarity um, with the Ukrainians. Finish that thought. <laughs> Sorry, I thought, I thought we had to go. No, so, and I don't know if there's a great answer, right? Is, is, it, is less news coverage helpful overall? Um, or is it, you know, quantity? Now we're out of time. Sam Burmist does. Let's post that Maureen Dowd column on our social media because it really is worth uh, reading. Um, That's it. Completely out of time. Tamar Hallerman, Michael Thurman, Sam Oldens, thank you for a wonderful conversation on the show today. Uh, Appreciate your being with us. We're back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy. Hey, and subscribe to our newsletter gpb.org slash newsletters. See you all tomorrow. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.